This is the Power of Genetics podcast, the podcast designed to help visionary practitioners build a more successful practice, transform more lives, and lead their patients into the future of personalized health. In each episode, I'll interview successful practitioners and leading thought leaders who will share their insights and expertise to help you prepare your practice for what lies ahead. I'm your host, Dr. Yael Jaffe, and now let's get into today's episode. A big welcome to Dr. Patrick Hanaway, who is my first guest of the second season of The Power of Genetics. And this, for me, is an incredibly special place to start. So welcome, Patrick. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to be here. I wish we were in person, but uh, here we are. Well, hopefully soon, hopefully in a couple of months, we'll be able to see each other in person. It's been way too long. But Patrick, I don't want to go through your CV because it'll take me probably most of the podcast. But I do want to share a little bit about my understanding of who you are as this kind of extraordinary physician, but also as an extraordinary human. So if you excuse me, I'm going to just touch on a few of the things that I've had experience of your work, just to introduce you to everyone listening to the podcast. And then perhaps you can fill in some of the gaps that I'm, I'm very likely to miss and maybe just bring it in kind of closer to us. So I've had experience of your work in multiple ways, but I guess Mostly, I've heard you speak multiple times at conferences like uh, IFM and, and PLMI. And on numerable topics, right from clinical content knowledge base to more recently, your extraordinary work at the Cleveland Clinic, which I want to touch on. And then obviously, more recently, the last presentation I heard from you was your personal journey, which I would also love to talk about a little bit later, if that's okay. And for me, what what strikes me as so extraordinary about the work that you've done is this combination of, um, let me see if I can put it into words, this, your incredible work at IFM. So obviously your involvement right from the faculty, from education, building out curricula, content, teaching. I mean, you're deeply, deeply embedded in the faculty of IFM and, and, and in how IFM has actually evolved over the last couple of decades. So that's my one sense of your work. The other sense, obviously, is around Cleveland Clinic, and we've been lucky enough at 3 Export to recently be chosen as the genetic testing company for the Center for Functional Medicine at Cleveland Clinic. So that's been wonderful for us, working with them, educating them, mentoring them around nutrigenomics. So we have a small a small touch, but I've, I've heard you speak about how the work at Cleveland Clinic was really about how do we create value around functional medicine? How do we bring not only the content knowledge, but the economics and the, and the value into it so that this is something sustainable. So that's my other sense of the work. But just on a, another level, I've had these amazing conversations with you that were very different from the general conversations I have with other practitioners at IFM conferences. And that speaks to your kind of the way that you exist in this world. And it speaks to your um, your being an indigenous healer, I think I think it's shaman is the right word. If it's not the right word, you can correct me there. And your wife as well. And we we often talk about your home and how you've been able to integrate all of that kind of indigenous alternative kind of shamanism, your understanding around 
uh, herbs and the different practices, meditation, as well as bringing in your integrative functional. And then, of course, being a physician. And then over and above that, this extraordinary humanness, which you've always brought and kindness and gentleness. So I know that's quite a lot to put on your face and quite a lot to live up to. Sorry about that. But perhaps you can just comment around what that journey has been for you, because what I really want to get out of this podcast and is so many practitioners who come to hear you at IFM and PLMI and, and are in awe of the work that you've done in having such an impact on functional medicine and integrative medicine. But we all start somewhere. You know, it all begins somewhere for us. We don't land up in that position without the work. So perhaps you can take us back a little bit and just put into context all the things that I've mentioned. I will, uh, I'll, I'll do my best, Yeah. What arose as you were talking is that you know, when I was in medical school, I thought that I was going to be learning about how to keep people well and healthy. And uh, it, was, it was quite a surprise, actually. I don't know why it was a surprise, but it was a surprise that that wasn't what happened. That wasn't what I was being taught. And there was an influence there. My second year, the beginning of my second year, I'd been reading Cellier. I'd been studying nutrition. I'd been working in the Lipid Research Center, trying to convince the head that we should follow more of a, of a Nathan Pritikin, what later became a Dean Ornish kind of low-fat approach that's a way of deal with cholesterol and heart disease. And, you know, and, and he wasn't having it. And, and the research was saying, hmm, maybe that's only good for some set of people, not for everybody. As I was doing, and I, I, I began to be aware of much bigger perspectives as I started my second year of medical school. And the very first lecture, eight o'clock Monday morning of the beginning of my second year, was Dr. Jeffrey Gordon. Now, you've heard Dr. Jeffrey Gordon's name, but he was just an assistant professor of pathology back in the early 80s. And now he's the head of the, of the gut microbiome project and has been, and is probably the, one of the two or three most foremost researchers on the gut microbiome doing incredible things. And I could wax poetic about that, but you know, he, he started the lecture and he said, we're gonna talk about pathology. Pathology is one way of looking at the human body. There are many, many different ways of looking at the human body. We can talk about an indigenous view. We can talk about a stress view. We can talk about Chinese medicine. We can talk about Western herbalism. We can talk about pathology. This course is about pathology. And all of a sudden, like, all of what I was learning and disliking in medical school all got contextualized in the bigger picture that I was feeling. It's like, oh, okay. Well, so I'm just going to go through and learn this as part of everything else that I'm learning. And so I had the opportunity in medical school. I, I learned, you know, manual therapies. I learned mind-body therapies and guided imagery. I learned Chinese acupuncture. I had acupunctoscope. I learned from it. You know, I did this because I decided I don't need to be at the top of my class and try to know everything about everything because the dean said at the beginning of the four years, over the next four years, you will learn all this material. And I want you to know that that four years later, 50% of it will be obsolete or wrong. 
you know, and four years after that, another 50%. So you need to keep learning. I'm like, okay, well, how about if I don't worry about, you know, I can pass this test and, and, and move along. I want to learn more about healing and a bigger picture view. And that's, that's what unfolded for me. And I was, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I had that opportunity. So the other person who, who came to mind was uh, um, my best friend's dad. And he was a physician and he was from Durban. And so this South African physician, you know, who had gone to Vitz, who had worked in the bush, you know, who understood what it was to really listen to people and to compassionately, you know, care for them. And he became my mentor. And I would go when I was home and I would I would go on rounds with him in the hospital. He became my he was my father's doctor, my <laughs> mother's doctor. And uh you know, it, he just embodied the compassion of being a, a true physician, a doctor in the, in the Latin essence, the docere, to teach, you know. And so when you talk about me, you know, on the intro, like to me, the being a teacher is being a teacher and being a healer. Those are the most important things to me. And being a teacher, I look at the lens of being a teacher as I'm teaching young students, patients, is that like, is remembering what it was like when I didn't understand, you know? And I like when I first approached functional medicine, I remember being at this small meeting, I was, I was, local, there was a lab here called Genova Diagnostics in Asheville, North Carolina. And I befriended the people and I was interested in, you know, practicing herbalism and hands-on therapy and integrative medicine. And they were talking about functional medicine. And I just would say like, I don't get it, you know, and it's, it's Charlie Gant and David Perlmutter and Vince Marinkovich and, and Jeff Bland. Yeah. And they're trying yeah. to, and they're trying to explain it to me. And I'm like, I'm not stupid, but I don't get it. Can you like simplify it for me? And they had a hard time simplifying it. They were so deep in it. And it's yeah. like, well, how do we simplify this? How do we begin to look at imbalances and function? And, you know, one person said, well, just take one tool and begin to work with it to deepen your understanding. And that would be part of what I would encourage, you know, those out there who are learning, you know, take one tool, or if you have five tools, take a new tool, learn it, mm -hmm. you know, look at, look at three X four, learn it, uh, you know, yeah. see how does it fit in? You know, for me, it was stool testing and understanding the gut because of the maxims that I'd heard from Ayurveda and Tibetan medicine and Chinese medicine and naturopath pathic medicine, you know, start with the gut. And, you know, that's what my, my career since that time has been built on that, you know, and I didn't, I didn't expect that, but it was like, well, that's, that's what happened. And that's how I've deepened my understanding. So I'm giving some aspects of that. And then there's also underneath it, there's that part of, of knowing that healing is body, mind, and spirit. And how do we 
incorporate all of those. So I was not looking for anything when I started having dreams. And I went to a, a teacher who'd been working with the Wairarica people in the Sierra Madres, the Huichol people in Mexico, and had been trained as what they call a marakame. Uh, shaman, shaman is a, is a Russian word. It's a Siberian word. Um, that, that is the native healers in that culture. It's, it's become a global term, but it's, it's so misused at this point in time as that I sort of don't, I don't like the word because it's, it's, it's representing, yeah, there's tea shamans, you know, there's fitness shamans, you know, there's. (laughs) So the right word is Marakami. Is that pronounced correctly? Marakami in the, uh, in the language of the Wedataka people who are one of the few groups in North America who um, did not have their cultures completely decimated um, decimated or uh or changed into a, a more christian view and it was because like the the hopi people in the united states uh because of the the relative difficulty of being able to access them they were able to in a in a more isolated way maintain their their views but they have continued to engage with Westerners. So um, I'm just, I'm blessed that uh, that was given the dreams led to a vision quest, which led to a recognition that I needed to follow this path. And so I, I spend about six weeks every year, specifically in preparation, training and pilgrimage and working with them. But I spend every day, you know, focusing on that aspect of connecting to the natural world you know, in my my thoughts and my prayers. I mean, that resonates a lot with obviously what we experience here in South Africa and what's one of the, one of the really, yeah, with the Sangomas. And one of the really interesting thing about South Africa is, of course, traditional healers or Sangomas actually recognized in our healthcare system. So we have many problems in our healthcare system, many. But one of the things we've done well is we've managed to actually maintain the traditional healer, the Sangoma, as part of our healthcare, and they're recognized, and there's medical health insurance for them, and they're very much part of our healthcare system. And we haven't, I mean, we haven't completely kind of pushed them aside and said, well, let's just put Western medicine in. So that's definitely one of the things that we've done better. Let's just say there's many things we haven't, but that's that's one of the good things. So I have had experience of that here, and we have kind of these kind of white sangomas who have gone to study and spend time in the bush and the rural areas and to learn it, which are all the most extraordinary healers when they bring both the Western medicine and the traditional healing and and together, which I guess is what you've been able to do. I'm working at it. It's, it's, it's an ongoing (laughs) journey. journey. Yeah. And your wife, Lisa, as well, my understanding, right? I mean, this is a journey that you've done together. Well, she was the one who connected me with the uh, with the indigenous healers in the first okay. place because she had deeply connected to it, and I just said, "I'm not interested in that." Oh, really? <laughs> you go. You go. <laughs> I'm good with okay. what I'm doing. And then, uh, like I said, then I I started having the dreams, and it, it became it became clear. Yeah, so we do that together, and and of course, just like I knew I was right all the time. Like I knew, you know. If you just listened to me before, like I was always going to be right about this, right? Yeah. It's the aspect of her feminine awareness. 
Yeah. Right. So let's talk about Cleveland Clinic because one of the greatest challenges of functional medicine that we're all experiencing is how do we create a model around it that it's accessible to more than just a few people? We don't have to debate the value of how well it works. We know that. But one of the things we're really backing with is how do we integrate it into a healthcare system so that it's accessible to more than just the few? And my understanding is that has been a large part of your work at Cleveland Clinic. Is that right? I mean, have I got that right? It is. And, you know, so in 2014, you know, Dr. Mark Hyman had been working with, talking with uh, the CEO at the time, uh, Dr. Toby Cosgrove, about bringing functional medicine into the Cleveland Clinic as an innovation. And the clinic, which is uh, now, um, actually, I believe next year is celebrating its 100th anniversary, has been known for innovation and bringing new ideas forward. And so Dr. Cosgrove said, you know, I, I want to do this. And Mark brought in the Institute for Functional Medicine into the conversation. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where you know, this story goes, you know, I was involved in trying to find the first medical director and and then I met with uh, Dr. Ends Cosgrove. Up in you. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he said, he said, I've been hearing that we want someone like you. And I said, uh, well, that'd be great. He says, well, I, the only person like you is you. And so we want you. And uh, it unfolded one one dinner in San Francisco Mm. with Jeff Bland and Mark Hyman and Toby Gosgrove and his wife, Anita, and my wife and Lisa. And all of a sudden, uh, when we left there and we're walking home, it's like, yeah, Patrick's going to go do this. And <laughs> what did uh, I just agree to? That's well, a bit of a was, job. It was a, it's, it's super exciting, you know, the yeah. opportunity to be able to do this. And so, you know, we started on the ground, you know, with one doctor, one nurse and one nutritionist and in about a 1500 square foot space. And in over the next year and a half, we grew to have eight doctors, four PAs, seven nutritionists, three coaches, a support staff uh, with 60 employees, and we grew to a state-of-the-art 18,000 square foot space, you know, where we also began to learn how to be able to work with virtual visits at the time, at that mm. time, um, before COVID, we, we were the, we were the largest deliverer of virtual visits in the wow. clinic. And we were one of the smallest departments, but, you know, we were learning that and learning about groups and, and because we had such a long waiting list and where the awareness became very early on, because it was about proof of concept and, you know, let's, let's do research. Now I'm a, you know, I'm a teacher and I'm a clinician and I didn't have a lot of experience done research on some biomarkers you know, to help bring things forward. But here we're talking about systems-based research, Mm. you know, and so I began to consider, well, if we're going to be looking at this, what we really need to look at is global measures of function. And we need to be able to demonstrate, you know, can we show that people are getting better? And when we have a lot of different disease types coming in, mm-hmm. we don't want to try to just limit it to a randomized controlled trial of a very specific inclusion exclusion criteria. We did that also, um, but that wasn't what the essence of functional medicine was. It's no. not about following a specific protocol. It's about listening to people's stories and guiding them on a journey. And so how do we measure function? 
And as we began to do that, it's like, uh, and we also will have the ability to be able to measure what the cost of care is for people beforehand and afterwards. And when we put those two elements together, uh, outcomes and money, uh, kind of outcomes divided by money, you know, we will call that value and be able to demonstrate. So we, over um, time, we were able to demonstrate and published in 2019 in, in JAMA Network, the demonstration that we were statistically significant and clinically significant better in patient reported outcome measures, uh, so-called promise measures. Now, these are things that I'd been aware of back in the 90s uh, through something called the SF36 and SF12 of how do we measure global function. And I've always felt like it is really important that we measure someone's state of health and well-being, how they're doing as like a global vital sign every time we see them. So we built that into our practice at the Cleveland Clinic. And we are finishing the information as it relates to the, the value-based side of things, uh, which also looks very positive. You know, and, and so what's curious to me is I was interested in prevention in med school. I was at the first prevention meeting at the CDC in 1984 when they said, we actually have to start looking at chronic disease prevention, not just infectious disease. And I was talking with leaders of HMOs saying, how do we measure? We feel like prevention and caring for people will give better care, better outcomes for less money. How do we measure that? We measure it, yeah. And we weren't really able to do it at that time yeah. because of the way the system was set up. So here, all of a sudden, 30 years later, I'm getting to do the questions that I was asking about 30 Full years circle. ago. Yeah. And we've been able to demonstrate the efficacy of the model. Now, one side note here, and, and that is uh, the curiosity is that those people in the conventional framework who have a, a cognitive view of what's going on, and they have the construct of how medicine is supposed to be. Let's say many of our internists, they're not accepting, even though the data is now showing yeah. that our outcomes are as good or better than theirs at the Cleveland Clinic. I mean, that's our control group is the Cleveland nice. Clinic, and we're doing better. And they're saying, well, we, we won't accept that data. You know, it, it's like, because they don't have that data for themselves, they're not looking at that. But the curious part to me was that the surgeons and the people who are like, they just want to help the patient get better. They don't really care about how it happened. They just care that the patient is better. They are super interested in the functional hmm. medicine model. Interesting. So who, who, who would guess that those would be the people who would say, yeah, you well, would not have hey, said that. Let's, yeah. let's go to, okay, we can do prehab before the knee surgery. And, you know, we're doing this many total knees. Let's, Let's get them healthier before surgery so that we can come through surgery and have better outcomes because that's what we care about. And that's what we're being evaluated on. And, and that's what we're, we're seeing. So it's, it was, it kind of caught me by surprise, but as I reflected, on it, I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense because functional like medicine is not a threat to, to surgeons. Sorry. It's, 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 an, it's a helpful thing. Um, yeah. So it's a great place to actually get in the door really to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had an interesting podcast with Terry Wells, and she, mm -hmm. she, she, of course, she's just amazingly wonderful. But the thing that I found so refreshing from her, and it's actually come through in a couple of the podcast interviews, is we have to work out 
how to work alongside conventional medicine. We're never going to make a success of functional integrative medicine when we see it as binary, when we see it as them and us. And she was absolutely emphatic. I mean, she's working at the VA. It's, if we don't work out how to work, to find that door, to find the ones to work with where it's meaningful, that's the way functional medicine will grow. But if we think it's their medicine and our medicine, we will never progress. We will never grow. We will never have the impact that we're looking to. And I, I think your story kind of brings it back once again. That's absolutely true. And, and uh, you, you asked about this, so I'm going to just jump in. And that is, uh, you know, ne never was that more uh, potent for me than, uh, than three years ago. Uh, just coming up on three years ago, where, uh, you know, felt a little lymph node on my neck, you know, it got biopsy, it was hard, I, it was biopsied, and it was like, it's cancer. Um, what's the primary? Okay, so go and, you know, get the MRI, and get the PET scan. And it's like, okay, well, it's, uh, it's a laryngeal primary, very epiglottic fold, didn't even know that existed. I mean, I could kind of figure it out when they told me, but it spread. So stage four laryngeal cancer. And, uh, you know, I was like, wow, you know, and I think it actually, you know, for me to learn, to really get it, it had to be stage four. It had to be something that was like, okay, you're really looking, got your attention. You're really looking got your at attention. your mortality, you know, it's like stage yeah. two. It's like, okay, yeah, I can, I can, I can, I can, push my way through this. It's like, oh no, I need to stop. I need to listen and I need to pay attention. And, you know, the myriad approaches that I took, um, which wasn't the, the hundreds of approaches that colleagues shared with me, but it was, you know, it was connecting to the indigenous healer. And then in the dream time, you know, it was like the dreams of the, the one-eyed hag who was you know, firing fireballs at my head. It's like, oh, that's radiation, radiation. therapy. Yeah. You know, I, I, I need that. And the chemotherapy is an adjunct on top of that. And then the ketogenic diet, which is particularly useful in about five different kinds of cancers. It's not to, and from my reading and, and research, it's not every cancer, mm -hmm. but there are, there are five cancers uh, types of cancers, you know, including glioblastoma multiforme and colon cancer, breast cancer, but cancers that get radiation, they do really well on a ketogenic diet. And so doing that, and then talking to my friend, John Weeks, who'd had a, a similar kind of cancer and his travails because he couldn't eat. And so I got a feeding tube, you know, and then, okay, well, how do you do ketogenic diet? filled with fat through a feeding tube, not easy to do, you know, and the big thing is you're going to lose weight as you go mm -hmm. through this therapy. And, you know, I'm getting acupuncture along the way and I'm eating my, you know, working with my, my functional medicine, integrative oncologist, Nalini Chilkoff. And then I said, Oh, I need to, I need to fast. I've you know, been a big proponent of fasting and the work that Walter Longo has done and his, his work all started, you know, in fasting before chemo. And so I started fasting before chemo every week, you know, and fasting for 48 hours. And the doctors are like, you're crazy. You're going to lose weight and you're fasting for 48 hours yeah. out, of, out of every week. And it's like, I didn't lose weight. 
and I didn't have the side effects. And the doctors were like, you're not acting like these other people. You know, it's like, it's not unfolding in you in the way that it had for other people. And I just feel blessed by all of the opportunities. But, you know, to, to come back to the, the spiritual aspect of it, if you will, is like also finding my voice, right? It's, it's in my, if you will, my fifth chakra. It's like, it's yeah. finding my voice. What is it that I really have to share? Because I've been focused on being like the intellectual, knowledgeable research teacher, you know, and, um, one teaching, one speech coach was like, oh, there's Patrick. He's the guru. He speaks very quietly. <laughs> He's on stage. And is like, and everybody laughed, but he like kind of nailed me, you know? Yeah. But it's like, but I'm not going to talk about the things that are really in my heart. And it's like, no, you know, no, I have to. And that's a part of it. And it's the exploration. And I've just had a, a, a a blessed life of being able to learn and continue to grow and now as my my practice is moving to have the 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 traditional healing approaches be the primary thing that oh, i do okay. and functional wow. medicine be the secondary thing that i interesting. do interesting that's yeah. like you know that's a, a big shift and that's a big it shift. feels awesome because it is learning to listen in a, um, a new way, in an old, old way, you know, yeah. of being able to connect into, you know, we might call it intuition, but it's not that. It's about the world is alive and speaking to us all the time. How do we take all that information into what we do? Well, thanks so much for sharing that with us. I remember, I don't know when it was, Patrick, but you gave a presentation about your journey with cancer. Was it a year ago? Was it two years ago? And I know it was online because it, it, it wasn't in person. Mm -hmm. I remember it so clearly because I think what struck me so much is what you allude to now, that this, you really, I mean, you brought together all the great wisdom, you know, the ability, you, you brought in the radiation, the chemo. So there were a couple of things that struck me when I heard you speak was this this melding and merging of 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 traditional healing with with western healing the extraordinary power of nutrition obviously me coming from a nutrition background and then i remember the stories you told about how do you put a keto diet and you and lisa in the kitchen trying to formulate how are we going to get this stuff like enough calories and enough nutrition down a tube and and i remember that and the humor of course and uh, so clearly but the other thing that struck me when I heard you speak is was around human connection, was around community and connection. It just felt like you were so powerfully connected and supported by your family, by Lisa, by your colleagues, that it almost felt like there was this extraordinary amount of healing in itself coming. And I think we've, we're now learning about that, obviously, from, you know, it's kind of entered into kind of our science discourse but I remember that struck me so much is that how you I just I imagined you in the middle surrounded by all this wisdom and support and people were formulating recipes and trying to do this and 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 that also struck me when when I heard you speak yeah well that's um one of the things that I realized early on was I, I was going to need help you know and I'm, I'm sort of always the one who's like 
put it on my back. I can carry it. And it's like, oh no, I, I need help. And, and then I began to recognize that, oh, wow, people around me have wanted to be able to help. They wanted to be in exchange with me all the time, but I'm like, no, I got it. I don't need your help. And it's like, oh, the, you know, we have a community where we have, we sit around the, the, the fire on a routine basis. You know, we do it with community. We do it with men's groups, women's groups, uh, various ceremonies, times of the year, you know, probably had a thousand fires, you know, in the time that we've lived here over the last 20 years and, you know, just connecting with each other around the fire. I remember when we were in South Africa and, and we gathered around the fire one night, it was actually like a, a an oil drum fire, you yep. know, and, and, that and, right. and yeah. the, uh, and the guy's there and he's like, he says, see this? I'm like, yeah, fire is great. He's like, he says, this is African TV. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, we're gathering and relating to each other. So I, yeah. I had a community that that wanted to help and support and it was there and it was incredible. And, and what I realized is that there's so much more support on many different levels that's there all the time. And if we can listen uh, and be open to it, it's there to help us along the way. So yeah, um, thanks for. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you, thank you for sharing. And I'm I'm going to move on to my last question because I am I'm, I am watching the time. But I do want to say before, in case I forget, is Patrick, I have to come to one of your fires. So when I do move to the states very soon, please invite me to one of your fires. I will please. travel to wherever it is. I would I would love that. Please, yeah. Really and we have it. we have we have teachers come and be at them as well at times. So, you know, sometimes like this past week and we we follow COVID, you know, we we separate, we've got a big, beautiful space to be able to do it outside under a, a, a covered structure. But you know, we had 20 people and it was beautiful, but sometimes, you know, we have 150 people come. Wow. So love to have you. That'll be great. All right. Now I'm going to be responsible and talk about the thing I'm supposed to talk about. So this this podcast is called The Power of Genetics. And of course, that is the work that I um, live and eat and sleep and dream is the world of genetics and how to do it better and how to improve things and how to bring the value, all the, all the same conversation around functional medicine, but obviously around genetics. So I know that in your career on multiple places and multiple touch points, you would have encountered genetics in your work at Genova. Obviously, Genova was one of the first companies in the world to, to bring out uh, nutrigenomic panels that um, in the early days, they still have them, but they certainly were one, one of the first companies that really kind of backed nutrigenomics. So that would have, you would have been part of that. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess just to, to finish off, I would love to get some thoughts from you on how do you think the power of genetics is really going to influence or will influence or has influenced or should influence, I should say, um, healthcare? I'm going to step back and say, you know, if we look at uh, Ayurvedic medicine, talking about the Prakruti, you know, like what our constitution is, what our basis is that we're coming in with, you know, and then as a parent having children and seeing like, wow, they're actually different when they come out of the womb, you know, and, and there's some genetic differences that are going on. It's not just the imprinting of, of the natural world. And so recognizing that, you know, for me, 
one of the, the first big awarenesses was, you know, as I was uh, teaching about genomics and beginning to do some genomics in the aughts, you know, in the early 2000s. And, you know, my family history is, you know, my paternal grandfather died of a PE pulmonary embolism at 43. My maternal grandfather died of a thromboembolic stroke at 56. My, my father uh, had a, a major heart attack at 54. You know, so, and actually, I'm sorry, at 44, had a major heart attack. And so I've been living with this, you know, family history of cardiovascular disease. So I went and did the, the original testing that we had then. I've had more done since that time. But it was like, it was astonishing. It's like, oh, it's not about cholesterol metabolism and it's not about APOE status. And it's not about, about factor two or factor five, you know, kinds of uh, clotting problems. But there's issues with like homocysteine and, you know, and, and those markers. And I began to, and then later, you know, with the work of uh, Jose Ardovas, you know, and others, you know, being able to deepen my understanding of like, what is my risk? really, yeah. and being able to apply that. So it became very practical and real of saying, okay, well, where's the, where's the point that I need to emphasize for myself about my risk? It's not the free floating, take a statin and drop your LDL cholesterol below 100. You know, like that's not the whole thing. It's like, what's the essence of the risk for me? And yeah. so, and so, you know, I've had the opportunity to, you know, do other testing and whole genome testing at this point in time. And I think it's a, it's a critical factor. And then there's, there's things that will then not only play out for me, but play out for, you know, my children. And the way that happens is another little interesting twist is that uh, in January of this year, I get a call from my uncle, my mom's brother, and he's 84 and he has laryngeal cancer. No way. And he's got wow. stage four laryngeal cancer. And both of us, it's HPV, human papillomavirus negative, which is unusual, non-smoker, non-drinker. And, and it's like, Super oh, healthy. that's curious. And then my sister, who's a nurse, is talking to my mom, who's a nurse. And my mom says, yeah, it's interesting. You know, my cousin Lyle had laryngeal cancer, you know, and he died of it 10 years ago. I was like, okay, well, this is all down the, the maternal yeah, side wow. of the family yeah. and what's the issue. So we're actually looking at what that is right now. So there's potency in, in terms of what does that mean? So I'm, I'm now I'm talking about very specific things, but yeah. I want to step back and say like understanding what the hand of cards that we're dealt with is essential for us to know how to play them. You know what, and and we recognize that that good environment can mitigate the effects of bad genes, and bad environment can you know you know eating you know ultra processed foods and not sleeping well and drinking too much alcohol and and not exercising can overcome the benefits of of having good genes. That's why I'm always focused on the phenotype, but the phenotype mm -hmm. is going to be a, a representation of that bathing of the gene environment interaction. And if you don't know what your genetic background is, much like I did with the risk of heart disease, you know, then I'm flying blind. 
And if I have a chronic disease, so my patients who come in, you know, I'll often use tools like, you know, Rhonda Patrick's tool and some aftermarket tools of trying to gather stuff. But what I want is really focused information that will allow me to look at the genetic predispositions that have a modifiable quality to the expression of them and teaching and understanding that too many people are get on my soapbox too many people are measuring things for which they there it is not modifiable or or making overstatements because someone has an hla dq2 or dq8 does not mean they're going to get celiac disease in fact only one in 33 people who have that is going to get the disease you know if if i've got someone i mean there's sometimes i look at that but uh, you know it's the exception it's not around you should eat gluten or not eat gluten i'm looking at the phenotype but in terms of the, the genomics, being able to really understand risk is a critical tool. And so as we go forward, you know, I'm, I, I remember looking at, at studies of, of colorectal cancer, and it's like, how can they be doing those studies and looking at, at what's happening and not be incorporating what are the foods that those people are eating and what are their genomic risks? Like you've got to include all those things in the equation or we're not going to understand how to be able to, it's not even about bespoke or personalized medicine. It's about good medicine. It's just, you know, gathering the data and giving the right treatment for the individual. And that's what we have the opportunity to do. And that's why I'm so glad that that 3X4 is out there teaching us. Well, thank you. That was beautifully said. I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself. You know, genetics by itself is not a solution. It's not an answer. It's not diagnostic. It doesn't solve all our problems. It's just this lovely, amazing, insightful layer of information, which we add in to everything else we do when we're trying to understand ourselves or our patients and help our decision making. That's what it is, you know, and we shouldn't make it more than it is but it is so basic and so intrinsic to understanding who we are in this world and how we respond to this world that it almost feels like you're not, you know, you, you just don't have the basics when you don't have it. So I think we, we probably agreeing. We're probably agreeing on that. 100%. That's beautifully said. So thank you so much, Patrick. Thank you so much for your time today, for sharing your background, for sharing your story about your cancer and how you fought through. It's, it's a true inspiration to all of us to see how all these things really come together and, and how healing can happen. So again, thank you. I am going to take you up on that fireside. I will let you know when I'm in town and I'm available to travel, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And again, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Power of Genetics podcast brought to you by 3X4 Genetics. For more episodes, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash podcast. And if you are a licensed health practitioner who would like to apply to join our network of over 1,000 like-minded visionary practitioners, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash apply.